Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Dominique Hill. Uh, this is another episode of Case Cast from St. Mary Mercy Hospital of Livonia, Michigan. I have Dr. Sarah Shackle, who is our QI lead physician and is also our wellness lead physician, as well as, well as a MSET board member, who's going to be talking to us today about an interesting case that she had. Uh, welcome, Dr. Shackle. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, let's get into a little bit about uh, why you wanted to talk about this case, Dr. Shackle. Yeah, I thought that this case reviewed a presentation of a of an uncommon but potentially life threatening process, and and I thought it would illustrate some education points. Um, it was something that is easy to miss if we don't look for it, and that's why I want to talk about it. Okay, so let's jump right into the case. So tell us a little bit about the case that you had, Dr. Shackle. This is a pretty recent case that I saw. A 50-year-old female brought into the ER by her son. He provided all of the history and reported that his mother had a long-standing history of schizoaffective disorder, as well as prior episodes of catatonia, generally manifested by her not talking or interacting with her environment. She had been released from a recent psychiatric hospitalization for this type of behavior about three weeks previously. Um, Since going home, he said that she initially seemed to be better, but for the past week she has had a decline and she's really not acting like herself. The son explained to myself and the nurse that it had been several days since his mother had talked to them. And compared to prior episodes, this episode was different in that she was very unstable and she was falling multiple times every day. When I actually initially saw the patient, she was looking around but not clearly interacting with her environment. And she kept on trying to get off of the stretcher where the nurse was attempting to draw blood and stand up. And when she stood up, actually me and the nurse caught her because she was that unstable. She was taking a few shuffling steps and then and then losing her balance. And that's what the son described was occurring at home. Her vital signs upon presentation were temperature of 37.0, heart rate of 129, respirations of 18, blood pressure 125 over 92, and standing 94% on room air. Her initial exam was notable for tachycardia, as noted in her vital signs and also on auscultation. She had a significant amount of bruising on her lower extremities, on the anterior shins and thighs, consistent with this history that she had been stumbling around and falling in, in, into things, but she didn't appear to be overtly tender. And she was unsteady and trying to walk, but when you spoke to her, she wasn't talking at all and didn't seem to be responding. And this included even when her son was talking to her. He initially started her with IV fluids and placed her on a monitor while obtaining further history. The son reported that um, she had been recently discharged from a psychiatric hospital. He actually had some paperwork from the hospital that indicated she had had her first Haldol depot shot three weeks ago and in fact was due for a second shot today or the day of the encounter. She had also been prescribed halopyridol 10 milligrams orally TID. The family actually noticed a worsening in her behavior and how she was moving after the first few days and contacted the psychiatrist who added benztropine, one milligram BID, to her haloperidol regimen. It was about a week and a half to two weeks ago. They noticed really no significant improvement, and so the son reported that the psychiatrist suggested that they drop the haloperidol oral dosing down to 10 milligrams daily. 
and she had taken the last dose that morning. Um, the son reported that she was having problems with coordinating her eating and drinking for the past few days and seemed to be choking even when she was trying to drink water. Um, as time went on in the emergency department, she was noted to have intermittent tremors even when sitting still in bed, and we ultimately had to put her in a posy vest with a sitter for her safety as she kept on trying to get out of bed. Um, she had ongoing tachycardia unless she was sleeping, and further examination showed that she had hyperreflexia if you touched her antecubital fossa or her patellar tendon. She really had three plus or greater uh, reflexes, and she had clonus on both ankles. She was a little bit hypertonic, but she wasn't profoundly rigid. The differential diagnosis that we came up with um, included extra pyramidal symptoms or EPS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, NMS, um, a serotonin syndrome. We had noticed she had recently been on a serotonergic agent and were worried that maybe she was still taking that unbeknownst to people a type of catatonia, and then other typical medical conditions were considered, things like sepsis, hyperthyroidism, some sort of other ingestion that the family wasn't aware of. The initial workup included laboratory studies, um, chest x-ray, and a CT of her head and neck, given the multiple balls and her alteration in behavior and, and EKG. These were done with the following results. The EKG showed sinus tachycardia with a rate of 134, there were no acute abnormalities, and specifically her QTC was borderline long at 456 milliseconds. Radiographic studies were done pretty quickly. A portable chest x-ray was unremarkable, no evidence of pneumonia, um, and CT of the head and neck were also negative. Our labs came back and were notable for a white count of 15.5 with a left shift. Um, lactic acid was 2.6. Total CK was elevated at 709, so not three times not quite three times normal. Her tox panel, including a drug screen, alcohol, acetaminophen, and salicylate was all negative. And her TSH was in the normal range at 0.51. Her bedside finger stick glucose, I should add, was normal. And empiric treatment with this data in mind included giving her empiric antibiotics, given that she was tachycardic with white count and lactic acidosis, Although this didn't seem, sepsis didn't seem like the most likely cause, we certainly didn't want to miss treating it. Um, and I contacted poison control because I was very concerned she was having a reaction to her new prescription to halopyridol. Poison control agreed with our assessment that she had um, kind of a mixed picture. They were concerned that this could be a variety of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and they recommended aggressive temperature management, including external cooling if needed if she became hyperthermic. They agreed with broad-spectrum antibiotics, and they recommended benzodiazepines um, for further short-term management while figuring out the picture. They also suggested that the son be asked to bring in any medication bottles that were in the home, and specifically the pill bottles with the haloperidol to make sure that the patient was actually given the medicine that the family thought they were giving her. So that kind of lead, leads me into a discussion of EPS versus NMS, so extra um, pyramidal sy symptoms versus neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And I think that this is kind of where the patient uh, fell somewhere on this spectrum. EPS occurs when patients are prescribed antipsychotics because the antipsychotics antagonize the dopamine receptors. 
it's thought to be related to an imbalance between the dopamine D2 receptor antagonism and muscarinic M1 receptor antagonism in the central nervous system. Haldol has a high D2 and M1 affinity. There's no specific physical symptoms with EPS, but patients can present with tachycardia, mild hyperthermia, dry skin, and decreased bowel sounds, almost similar to an anticholinergic toxidrome. Its presentation, again, is variable. The pupils may be any size, and patients may have mild somnolence to a comatose state. Um, when evaluating for this, for um, you always start with the ABCs, getting glucose, EKG, and lab studies. But for mild symptoms, it's supportive care. You can treat more severe symptoms, such as seizures with benzodiazepines. The goal is aggressive temperature management um, and cardiac monitoring and management of any electrolyte abnormalities aggressively to prevent prolongation of the QTC interval. Um, other treatment options include diphenhydramine, benztropine, and amantadine. This EPS, it's more common with Haldol than other antipsychotics, and oftentimes it's manifested by akathisia, which is a motor restlessness where somebody can't stay still. So this patient had that. She kept on trying to get up, trying to move around. Um, for this symptoms, you can try propranolol or benztropine again. And it sounds like her psychiatrist was actually trying that on an outpatient basis, and it just wasn't working. Um, more severe cases, patients can have a Parkinsonian syndrome with a mask-like facies resting tremor, cogwheel rigidity, um, a shuffling gait, and bradykinesia. Um, again, this can be treated with benztropine and amantadine. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS, is a more potentially lethal side effect in the antipsychotic family. Wow, Dr. Shackle, this has been very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Continue. The mortality of NMS is 10 to 20%. And, and usually we talk about a tetrad of, of symptoms, and it's really important to uh, be to be familiar with this. This both shows up on board exams, potentially on oral boards, but also just for clinical practice because this is a lethal condition um, if missed. We look for mental status change, muscle, re uh, which, can which can present as anything from agitated delirium versus catatonia or mutism, muscle re rigidity, and the classic exam question is lead pipe rigidity, which refers to a stable resistance through all ranges of motion, but it may look co cogwheel or Parkinsonism due to tremor. Um, you may also see dysarthria and dysphagia, and the patient actually had these, the dysphagia described by her son with muscle rigidity. Hyperthermia is a defining symptom, and temperature can be really high, greater than 40 degrees, and often doesn't respond to um, typical temperature management like acetaminophen or ibuprofen and needs external cooling measures. Um, an autonomic instability, which includes tachycardia, labile blood pressure, tachypnea, diaphoresis. Often, and again, let's review the tetrad, and that's, again, mental status change, rigidity, fever, and dysautonomia. Um, typically, the symptoms develop during the first two weeks of treatment, and there's an increased risk in patients who have a history of catatonia, such as this patient, and agitation. When you're evaluating in the emergency department, you can see lab abnormalities such as elevated CK, and it's usually higher than 1,000. So our patient, again, was in the 700 range, so not quite there. Leukocytosis is, is 10 to 40, often with a left shift, and our patient had a leukocytosis of 15 with a left shift. Um, 
you may see mild elevations in LDH and some of your liver transaminases and alkaline phosphatase. She did not have this. Um, you can have acute kidney injury from rhabdo, which she did not have, and low iron, which I did not check for in the ED. An atypical variant may come with a, a lower potency antipsychotic or an earlier diagnosis in which rigidity is mild or even absent. Oftentimes described in the literature, the symptoms come in a typical order, usually seeing the mental status change first, then the rigidity, then the hyperthermia, and then the autonomic instability. Um, the differential for this should include NMS if you have two of the tetrad, but can also include serotonin syndrome, which is distinguished from NMS because typically you have more hyperreflexia and clonus nataxia, but less rigidity and hyperthermia. Um, again, one of the uh, characteristics of serotonin syndrome is that you are usually on a medicine like an SSRI or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or similar medicine, and this patient was not known to be on those medicines. You could have malignant hyperthermia, but that is typically uh, related to inhalational anesthetics, which this patient did not receive, or succinyl choline, again, which she did not receive. Malignant catatonia is another differential consideration, and in that case, the patient usually has a behavioral prodrome to the hyperthermity and rigidity, and often a motor disturbance, meaning that they don't have a, a core neurologic disturbance, but they're unable to do things as a core feature. So she did have some features of this, and typical things that we consider in emergency medicine workups are also considered here, like drug intoxication, CNS infections, or sepsis, seizures, thyroid disorder none of which we found clear evidence of, although we did empirically cover her for sepsis. The treatment of NMS is to stop the agent, to provide supportive care like aggressive temperature management, maintaining a uvolemic status, and treating with benzos for agitation. So again, these were the recommendations of poison control. Um, with medical treatment, the recommendation is to start with benzodiazepines. You can consider dantrolene, which is a direct skeletal muscle relaxant, also used for malignant hyperthermia, Bromocryptine, a dopamine agonist, which corrects for the lost dopaminer dopaminergic tone, or amantadine, which is, again, a dopaminergic and anticholinergic effects uh, medicine. Poison control considered recommending these medicines, but with her overall mild symptoms recommended, we stick with benzos and see if that helped. Most cases of NMS resolve in one to two weeks, but the mortality is 5 to 20%. If the patient is felt to need to go back on antipsychotics in the future, it's recommended that you wait two weeks after symptoms have resolved and use a lower potency agent with a low dose and very careful monitoring by the psychiatric care team. If you get something like a neuroleptic-induced catatonia, um, which looks like NMS but without a fever, you can treat that with benzos as well. And in concluding this case, the patient was ultimately admitted to the step-down ICU unit where they felt that her presentation was, was most consistent with EPS and acathesia, and they treated her as supportive with benztropine and lorazepam. Um, she improved gradually over about seven to 10 days and ultimately was discharged to inpatient psychiatric care for ongoing management of her schizoaffective disorder. Still, I think a really interesting case in the ED when, when I actually gave her um, lorazepam, you could see a marked change in her symptoms almost immediately. Her tachycardia resolved, her tremors resolved, um, her clonus improved, as did her hyperreflexia. Um, but I think that the case illustrates 
that these are important things, EPS, NMS, serotonin syndrome, to keep on your diagnosis for patients who come in with potential psychiatric complaints. Um, again, this patient was initially triaged as a potential psychiatric case and, and ended up having a medical diagnosis requiring admission. I agree. This uh, this case illustrates for sure that you have to have a high index of suspicion for these diagnoses, especially when patients that are on antipsychotics, even if they are just coming in for a psychiatric complaint, if you will. Um, you've given us some great information in terms of uh, what to look for in terms of the symptomatology, treatment, and also uh, PEARLS as well as to help differentiate between EPS, NMS, serotonin syndrome. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Shackle, for sharing such an interesting case with us on the case cast here. And um, thank you. look forward to having you in the future and would like to thank everyone else for tuning in. Thanks for having me.